One of the things that attract people to Jesus is the concept of faith, of connecting to Jesus and trusting him. Another thing that really connects people to Jesus is just the understanding of love, that he loves us. And as followers, we're to love people. And, and love is such an important dynamic of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's such an important component of church life, that we, we are to be a people of love. When love is not preached or love is missing, there is something fundamentally wrong with that church, where the love is not evidenced. And nowhere is the love of Jesus more evident than in the cross. And when he went to the cross, he showed us his love. And we're in a series entitled Jesus on the Cross. We're looking at the seven words of Christ. And the first two weeks, we have seen uh, the forgiveness of Jesus. We've seen the salvation of Jesus. And today we're going to come and see the love, uh, which is found in John chapter 19, uh, verses 25 through 27. The word love's not even used, but it is the dominant aspect of this passage, as we shall see in the message. So here it is. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. (coughs) Excuse me. Once again, I have some allergies. Uh, So in this passage, what we see then, or this message, what I want you to see is this. At the cross, we see the love of Jesus. It's really simple. When you come to the cross of Christ, what you see, what dominates, is the love of Jesus. And so uh, today we'll just come and start off by looking at this uh, third statement from Jesus. And I'm going to be honest with you. This this is a difficult passage to actually preach from. Uh, I looked through my uh, notes from almost 40 years in ministry. I've never preached from this passage before. I didn't have anything in any file anywhere that I ever preached from it. And, uh, and I think, well, that's interesting. In fact, of, of the seven messages in this series, this is the second most difficult to get a message from. The most difficult is in two weeks when Jesus says, I'm thirsty. I, I can't tell you how hard it is to preach a message for Jesus just simply saying, I, I'm thirsty. Um, but all of, these, all of these words of Christ have, have some depth to them. And when, and when you study them, especially you study them together, then the depth of these words begin to hit us. Um, and one of the things you see, it, it just look at the total context of this, of this phrase. When you, when you look at the, the last four things that Jesus said, and, and Jesus said three of the statements were made really early, about nine in the morning, uh, and then three were made really late, about three in the afternoon before he died. And the last four statements, you, you see Jesus really becoming kind of inward and dealing with his relationship to his father as pertaining to his message of salvation. Or his mission of salvation. So he says, Father, I will see this next week. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. These are very personal things to Jesus. And they all relate in some capacity to the reason Jesus came on the cross. The first three things he said, though, uh, they're, they're personal but not inward. They're, they're really directed for the, pers- for the benefit of other people. Uh, even when he says, Father, forgive them, he's talking about real people that need forgiving. Uh, today you'll be with me in paradise, salvation. And in this phrase, he's talking about love, caring for his mother. So there's, there's a real concern towards other people on these first three statements. Now, when you come to the statements of Jesus, you, you, you see that you know, three are made really quick, and, and then four are made much later. And, and some time passes. It may be that he said other things we don't really know. Part of it has to do with the people who were there. I mean, the information we have from about the cross comes from the few people that 
were there. When John was there, John was there early. Uh, then he took, after we'll see in just a minute, he took Mary. He took Mary and he put her in a safe place to be watched over uh, for the remainder of that day. And then he undoubtedly came back right before Jesus died and got the last few things that Jesus said that he recorded. Uh, Luke probably got most of his material from the women who were there, quite possibly Mary Magdalene who was there. You know, and Matthew and Mark, they got it probably from one of the women. And so you just, you kind of get this picture emerging. There are, if you look at the four Gospels, and especially John, where we're at, there are five people who were connected to Jesus who were there. One is a guy called the disciple whom he loved. In, in God's, John's Gospel, is the only one that mentions this guy there. Who is this disciple? Well, we understand it to be John who, who wrote this book. Um, John doesn't refer to himself by name. He refers to the other apostles when he mentions them by name. But for himself, he just has this description universally understood to be John of the beloved disciple. In chapter 13, verse 23, at Christ's Last Supper, it says, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at the chest of Christ. You know, when you look at the other Gospels and you kind of picture how they were arranged, you know this was John. Um, in the uh, 20th chapter, verse 2, at the, the resurrection, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved ran to the tomb. The first, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first in Peter. In chapter 21, the restoration of Peter, the twice John is mentioned, or twice the disciple whom he has loved is mentioned. And you just put all this together and you get this picture. This, this fits John. So John was there and so were four women. Um, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four of the Gospels as being there. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned only here. And here we also see a woman who is called the sister of Jesus and a woman named Mary uh, who is the wife of Clopas. Because there are a lot of Marys, you have to distinguish all the Marys. And so uh, if you look at the other Gospels, it mentions a woman, Mary, who was the mother of James the Less, one of the apostles, and uh, a guy named Joseph of Joseph. And it mentions a woman named Salome who was the mama of uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so if you put them all together, what you see here in John is... Most likely, Mary, the wife of Clopas, then, she was also the mother of James the Less, who was an apostle in Joseph. And then Mary, the mother of Je- uh, sister of Jesus, I should say, was most likely Salome, the mother of James and John, who would have made them Jesus' cousins. So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who many people believe was Mary's mother-in-law, because Clopas was probably married to Joseph, and then you have Mary Magdalene. They were all there. It's interesting when you see the women there. I mean, you know, the apostles are gone except for John. It's five, four women there. At the resurrection of Jesus, the first people there are women, including Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to see Jesus. As, as kind of a side note, this is, this is not really part of the message, but I just want to put this in here. Women play a significant role in the story of Jesus. Do you know that? Neither Jesus, the apostles, including Paul, or any of the gospel writers uh, ever treat women as inferior. Why? What caused... That would, love would never do that. The treating of women inferior from a Christian perspective is against the very concept of love. That, by the way, went against all the prevailing culture. In the culture of that day, I got bad news for you, women. You were treated as being inferior. You didn't have the same status as me. Now, if you were married to a wealthy guy or came from a wealthy family, that would be a little bit different. But as a rule, the average woman was not treated the same way as a man. It is Christianity that changed that. Paul even tells us. He's the one. And it's, it's amazing how many times people today look at Paul, even in the church, as if he's a sexist or he, you know, he hates women because, you know, to Timothy he said, listen, you got a problem going on in Ephesus, so just don't let the women teach. 
And all of a sudden, it makes Paul a sexist. Paul's the one who wrote, there is no difference between, in the eyes of the Lord, men and women. They're the same. And Paul wrote that. The very foundation of Western culture comes from the New Testament. And that foundation elevates the role of women to being equal to men. It is the only culture that has ever truly done that in a significant way. It comes from Christianity. I just want to point that out because I think it's important we realize in the world we live in, in all the stuff we hear, it is Christianity that says women rise to the level or at the same level as men. And you see that in the story about Jesus. And so you even see that here when he comes to his mother. And so as he's on the cross, the first thing he says is, woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. The word behold means kind of pay attention. It's kind of a command. Something is happening. And, and he basically changes the relationship status that exists. It's interesting that he uses the word woman to refer to his mama. Uh, and he does the same thing in um, the second chapter of John at the wedding feast of Canaan. It, what happens here, and sometimes what we need to realize and remember, <coughs> excuse me, is that not only is uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, or not only is Jesus Mary's son, Jesus is also her savior. And so what you see on the cross, and this is an important thing, you see Jesus beginning to kind of distance himself from his traditional role as the son of his mother. He's hanging on the cross. Now, by now, Mary is most likely, highly probably, a widow. I mean, there's no sign of Joseph. He's gone. It's universally understood she's a widow. Jesus, the eldest son, took care of her. Now, Jesus is about to die. Now, we know he's going to be raised back to life, but that's not the issue. He's going to die. He's got to provide for his mother. He doesn't put her, which would be a natural thing to do, into the hands of his next brother, James, or one of the other brothers. He doesn't, he doesn't give her to them. Several reasons. One, they're not there at the time, but also they weren't believers. Now, this is, a crazy, this is the thing. Mary, because she is the mother of Christ who is dying, when Jesus dies, things are going to change chaos will ensue. And because of her position, she is going to be in a very troubled, chaotic kind of state. And things are going to happen around her. And it, but Jesus does not want to put her well-being into the hands of his brothers who do not, as of that moment, believe in him. He wants her well-being in the hand of someone who is going to understand what is happening and who, because of their faith in Jesus or their connection to Jesus, would be better suited to provide for his mom. That person is going to be his cousin, John. So he distanced himself from his mother, but he puts her, because of his love for her, in the best possible care. So he says to his mom, woman, and I, I can't imagine... God, my mom's with Jesus now. I can't ever imagine calling my mother woman. I can't imagine what would have flown in my direction. Because things had before. You know, my mom, there you go. My mom, my mom, I'll never forget. You know, she say, she went with me, go get a belt. I go get a belt. Not that one. I said, look, man, you can't send me to get my own device of punishment and then complain about which belt I would bring, you know? I can't imagine how many belts would be used if I said woman to my mother at any age. And here's the thing. Jesus, though, is putting this distance between her. Why? Because he's not simply her mother. Get this. He is her Lord as well. And here's the thing. <clears throat> when he comes back from the dead, when he's resurrected, he never again, and from the scriptures, has the 
mother-son relationship with her. We see no connection to her at all. In fact, at his resurrection, he is no longer her son. He is her Lord. So what does he do? Because of his love for her, he puts her in the best possible position he can with John, who is a believer. And on top of that, because of his love for us, he separates himself from his mom as well. His love for us. And so John, it says John took her into his own. The idea means he, he, he took her into his home. And even when Jesus' brothers became followers of Christ, John still provided for her. So here's, here's the thing to see. Jesus released Mary to John because he loved her and because he loved us. He releases her to John, first of all, because he loves his mom. He wants her to be in the best possible care. But he also releases her to John because he loves us and takes any pressure away or any sense away of having to go back to being her son. Now Jesus simply is a savior. And the remaining time he has, not simply at the cross, but on earth after his resurrection, is focused in his position as Lord. So this is kind of the significance of this statement. Now, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to take, take this statement with the other two, and I want to tell you why this matters. And, and so what I, I kind of want to do for a few moments now is, is because these seven statements, they all go together. You know, we take them individually, but they kind of go together. And the first three are grouped together, and the last four are grouped together. I want to take the concept of forgiveness and salvation and love, and, and I kind of want to bring them, bring them and, and kind of focus them together. And, and here's the thing to, to keep in mind. You know, the, the Christian faith, you know, if you say, how would you describe the Christian faith? You would talk about love, forgiveness, salvation, no faith. You, that, those are the things you would talk about. And these are exactly the same themes we have been seeing these first three weeks. So, first of all, let's, let me share this. The, the cross of Christ has a personal connection. There is something personal about what's going on. Uh, think of it this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. When, when you come to forgiveness, the, the people that Jesus is forgiving are the people who are actually crucifying him. Not, not Pilate, not Caiaphas. These are the guys who are nailing him to the cross. So, so what does Jesus say? He says, he says Father, these guys who are crucifying me, forgive them. Don't, don't hold any of this against them. To, to the thief who said, remember me, what does Jesus say? He says, look, today, you, you will be with me in paradise. You and me. That's a personal connection. To his mother, who is extremely personal, he demonstrates his love for her by making sure she is provided for in the best possible way so that he can continue to demonstrate his love for us by dying on the cross. Christianity is a personal thing. It's about our personal connection to Christ. Now, you know, I say that, and I uh, tend to take that for granted, but more and more, even within the context of Christianity, people are trying to distance themselves from the idea of personal relationships to Jesus. <clears throat> I don't know of any other religion or faith, certainly none of the major ones, or philosophy, that expresses personal relationships with God. You know, in most religions, you, you worship God because you're afraid of God, or you want to appease God, or, or, you, or you want to do something to kind of make things level with God. 
they offer sacrifices for that way. God is, God and goddesses are feared. They're, they're manipulated. They're whatever. The worship isn't about having personal access. It's not about the personal connection at all. In Christianity, it's different. It's all about that sense of personal connection. Today, there are some who, who want to take that personal connection out. And, and, and I, you know, I've read even fairly recently, somebody writes that the idea of a personal relationship to Jesus is foreign to the New Testament. Well, well, come on, man, just read the Bible. I mean, put it to you this way. Read the whole of all, everything. Read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, and you see the personal aspect of God. In the Old Testament, God was personally connected to, Abraham, uh, to Adam. They, God walked in the garden with Adam as person. He, he personally chose Abraham. He spoke to Abraham personally. Uh, he made a covenant with Abraham. It was personal. Moses, I mean, there's the whole burning bush thing. It's pretty personal. And then it's on Mount Sinai. Moses can't even look on God because God is in the pre- there with Moses. Moses is in the actual presence of God. And when Moses dies, God takes Moses. I mean, no one even knows what happens to Moses. That's pretty personal. David is the man after God's own heart. The things he writes are personally connected to God. You come to the New Testament. What does Jesus do? He sees a leper. He touches the leper. He's with the leper. There's a personal connection. He has a personal relationship with his apostles. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, not even her own kinsman, but everything to do with her, he sits down and personally communicates to her. Peter goes, and he and John, early in Acts chapter 3, there's a man who's born lame, crippled, Peter personally connects to say to, to heal him you know Paul writes letters there's personal connections Christianity is all about the personal why because Jesus has a personal connection to us he's our personal savior and the people that distance himself from that they do so because they want to redo even within the confines somehow or in, in the context of Christianity they want to make Christianity just another way to God so they reject the idea of a personal relationship to Christ because if you have a personal relationship to Christ, it pretty much excludes everything else. And they don't want to exclude everything else. <laughs> so that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's personal. That's exclusive. That's him. And that's exactly what you see. And as important as the mission of Christ was, he never let that mission interfere with the personal connection to people. And the good news is, I can personally have a relationship to Jesus. I love that. I need that. I want that. People want that. What attracts people to Jesus? He will forgive them of their sin. He loves them. He will save them personally. Not in a group. Just you. And so that personal connection, so important. And you see at the cross, the cross of Christ, not only was that, it was a focused mission. It's the reason Jesus came. The cross was always on his mind. It was where he was going. You know, when Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him, keep him from the cross. You know, Satan tempted him in the wilderness, keep him from the cross. A couple of weeks ago, as he was hanging on the cross, Come down off that. Save yourself. Show us you the Messiah. There was, all the, there was always this movement to keep him from the cross. But Jesus' mission was that. And nothing else interfered. Not even his love for his mother interfered with the mission of the cross. Which is why Jesus could go. And he could say, John, I want you to watch after my mom. I want you to take my mom. I want you to treat her like your own mom. And you take care of her. 
Because there was something else Jesus needed to do that was more important than taking care of his mom. It was to be the Lord of all life, including the life of Mary. That was always the mission of Jesus, to go to the cross. Which then leads us to this, that our salvation is personal and focused, and it's based on love. It's a personal and focused salvation that's based on love. When you think about the verses that are best known and most loved in the New Testament, well, probably the first one that pops to mind is John 3.16, where John is basically probably quoting Jesus as saying, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He loved the world. We like to read that part about God loving the world, us. In Romans, Paul said God showed his great, vast love for us. That while we were in the very process of sinning, Christ Jesus died for us. The cross then is the demonstration of the love of God. Jesus told his own disciples, No greater love does a man have than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. I mean, there was just this, this just sense that love drives everything, even the cross. And so we come to the understanding that, that, that our salvation experience is a personal thing. And that it's always the mission of Christ. We come to get that based on love. So I'm forgiven of my sin. And I am saved because of love. And, that, and that's the driving force. And that's, that's this great message we have to the world. I mean, when I sat this week, and, and, well, actually, I sat this last couple of days, even, you know, you know, I went to sleep Friday, I woke up in the middle of the morning, middle of the night, and I was up for hours just trying to figure out what to do. I, you, I can't get away from this understanding that people need to come into contact with Christ, and to do it online is so, you can, but sometimes people just want to come and be in the presence and hear something they need in their life. And you can never never get away from that that the personal connection to Jesus is so overpowering that we need his presence in our life people need to experience forgiveness they need to know their love so they can be saved this is the message we have we say all the time this is what we tell people this is what faith is all about and it's driven by this love here's the thing Jesus came for you and died for you, and rose for you, to save you, because he loves you, and his father loves you. Think about it. He came. He died. He rose to save. Why? Because of love. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And when you come to this brief saying of Jesus... And one that probably when you read this, you just kind of gloss over, okay, good, he take care of his mom. You realize he loved his mom, so he made special provision for her benefit. And then taking care of that from this point forward, having forgiven and saved in love, everything else on Jesus' mind is about that cross and him dying to forgive us, driven there by love. Uh, when I was preparing everything and reading 
I came across a statement from a commentary, Dr. Herschel Hobbes, he's long past, but he's a great Baptist preacher and scholar. He said this about this passage, in an ocean of hate, we see an island of love. In the ocean of hate of crucifying Christ, there's this little island of love, of, the, of, of John and the women for Jesus and Jesus for them. That is the essence of what salvation is. In an ocean of failure, of hate, of sin. There is this love for us that drives Christ to the cross to save us. It is a personal salvation so that we can experience the personal aspect of forgiveness in Christ. Kind of brings you to an understanding of how do we respond to a love like this? It's very simple. We trust Jesus with our life. The only way to respond to that is to say, here's my life, Lord. I give it to you and I trust you. And that is something you may need to do today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to give your life to Christ. In just a minute of invitation time, you may want to come and say, I want to trust my life to Jesus. But it also does something else. We respond to this as a follower of Jesus by realizing other people deeply need the same love and forgiveness. And it should drive us as a people to bring other people to Jesus. And so maybe the thing you need to do with our invitation is just to say, Father, I need to help people, especially now, especially with all this crazy chaos, I need to help people come to you to experience that personal connection to you and in experiencing that connection to experience your love. And maybe the commitment you want to make today is to pray with one of us, help me to share this love with some colleagues, some friends, some family member, whoever it is. I, you know, I can't tell you what you really need to do. It's always difficult. You know, I don't like to be told what I should do. But this is kind of what I know. I know that you need to leave here today really connected personally to Christ. That's why he came. Because he loves you. To have that personal relationship. Let that be the thing that guides your life. So, Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he gave so freely. He forgave. He saved. He loved And he did that for the people around the cross, and he did it for us. Loved us, forgave us, saved us in Christ. There's such a personal connection there. Help us to make that personal connection and to give our person to Jesus, to trust him completely and totally as our Savior, to take our life and give it to him because of his love, to have that personal relationship and to bring Father, salvation to our life through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? If you need to come, we'll be here. We'd love to have you.